0: This morning we are going to finish our series on money and the kingdom of God, uh, exploring how our faith and our finances are intertwined, and today we're going to be talking about generosity. Um, so uh, Aubrey preached uh, about this about 10 years ago, so I stole from his sermon liberally, or I'm just riffing off a lot of it, so um, there you go, stole a sermon about generosity. Um <laughs> If you've got a Bible with you, and I hope you do, turn to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible, if you're, if you're not familiar with using the Bible. Turn to Exodus 35. It's the passage that Luke read to us. There, uh, we read one of our great family stories. It's the story of the Israelites coming together and building the tabernacle, the place where uh, God's presence will dwell, the place where they will worship Yahweh. And to do this, they give from their own assets. Now, two things stand out about this giving. First, it is extravagant. We didn't read this, uh, but in, cha- in chapter 36, uh, apparently they end up giving so many things that Moses has to put a stop to it. He says, please stop giving stuff. We've got plenty of stuff to make everything we need to make, plus more than that, so please keep everything at home. We've got plenty. It's extravagant. The second thing about this giving that the, that the author makes clear is not only was it extremely uh, generous but it was also totally voluntary. So over and over again in this passage, we hear phrases like this. Verse 5, Whoever is of a generous heart. Verse 21, Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22, A willing heart. Verse 26, All the women whose hearts stirred them. And this continues and continues into the next chapter as well. So here we have giving that is both extravagant and voluntary. Now, there's a name for this type of giving in the Old Testament. Look at verse 29 if you got the passage in front of you. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. And in the next chapter, it comes up again, uh, chapter 36, verse 3, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. The free will offering shows up again and again in the Old Testament. It was one of the types of offerings that, uh, that God taught the Israelites to practice in the Old Testament, because He taught them several different ways of giving and offering things and doing sacrifices. One of the offerings was the free will offering, it was a voluntary gift that was above and beyond the tithe. So, if you were here last week, uh, Keith showed us that the tithe was one of the types of offerings, but it was set. And it trains us to see God as the owner of all things. So, the tithe was 10% off the top um, of whatever resources came into a person's hands. It wasn't optional, and it wasn't a gift. It was more like this holy thing that was in your house, this 10% that had to get out and go to the right place. But free will offerings... This was truly a gift. It was over and above the first 10%. You can look at it this way. Uh, when, God does, when God told people to do a tithe, he desired them to do it joyfully, but he didn't require their heart to be in it. The freewill offering, on the other hand, was all joy. It came from a heart that was stirred up by God's grace. So the tithe was a demonstration of obedience, but the free will offering was a demonstration of love and worship and joy you could say the israel the israelites tithed because god told them to do it and they gave free will offerings beyond the tithe because they wanted to now when we turn to the new testament we see that the free will offering far from going away is so ingrained in the people of god that they continue to do it over and over And there are examples all over the New Testament, one of the clearest ones being in our reading from 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this, each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then if you flip back to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3, for they gave according to their means, uh, this is Paul talking about a different church, that church gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own free will begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. What we're reading about in Corinthians sounds just like the Exodus passage, except there they're not giving offerings in order to build the tabernacle. There they are giving offerings to give relief to the Christians in Jerusalem who are in a desperate situation. They're being persecuted, uh, they're, they're deeply poor, and do not have resources coming from anywhere else unless their fellow Christians and other churches provide for it. It's the free will offering. Uh, This passage in 2 Corinthians is not dealing with the tithe. Paul is not here making this blanket statement that we only give to the Lord if we feel like it. When he instructs the Corinthians that a person, quote unquote, shouldn't give under compulsion, he's not talking about the normal week-to-week operations and ministries of the church to which every member must contribute. He's talking about a one-time special offering going to desperate Christians in Jerusalem. It's the free will offering again. So just like in our Exodus passage, the New Testament Christians are giving generously to real needs above and beyond the tithe. And it makes so much sense that this would continue in the New Testament, in the age of the Messiah, right? Because here's a group of people that are shaped by the Savior who emptied himself completely so that we could become rich and have all things, and so no wonder the New Testament Christians gave in joy and in peace. And if you look fast-forwarding through church history, you see this again and again and again, that Christians everywhere and of every culture do this, the free will offering. So just one example I want to give you is C.S. Lewis. And I want to give you that example because Lewis is like quoted all the time from places like this, like sermons. Uh, he's known for his brilliance. He's known for his clarity. He wrote the Narnia series. He wrote these wonderfully helpful and brilliant books. But Lewis is less well-known for his posture toward money. Now, Lewis grew up basically in poverty, uh, kind of scratching a living. And eventually, he becomes a professor right at at Maudlin College and um, starts to have a more stable life. But then he starts writing books. He writes the Narnia series and and starts getting royalties from, from all of these works that he's been doing. And early on, he decided that all of the royalties would go in this fund that would, that would be given only to people that were in need. What Lewis did was he refused to change his lifestyle based on these new royalties that were coming in. And yet, he's totally honest. So let me give you a Lewis quote, just because you got to quote Lewis all the time, right? He says this, "'I'm a panicky person about money myself, "'which is a most shameful confession "'and a thing dead against our Lord's words.' And poverty frightens me more than anything else except large spiders and tops of cliffs. (laughs) And yet, and yet his heart was stirred to do something, to do something with this crazy influx of money that was coming in on top of what he already had. Um, So like I said at the beginning, I got to read Aubrey's sermon that he preached on this 10 years ago. Uh, and there's this one point in, in the sermon, uh, and I said this, in the. it's like an awkward moment for Aubrey because I'm talking about him like he's not there. Um, but there's this one point as Aubrey's preaching 10 years ago where he starts talking about incarnation. And it's this brand new baby church plant, 2012, like two years old. Um, and he starts talking about what he senses God might be leading incarnation to do, sheerly out of the works of generosity. And I just wanted to share a few things with you to show what God has done in 10 years and what he, what he can do in a, in a really short period of time. So, February 2012, uh, Aubrey talks a little bit about the building. Uh, and he says something like, this, this space we're in can't fit 100 people. This was a different one this, than this building, obviously. Um, and it was amazing reading that manuscript from my office, which is in this church building. The curate has an office in the church building. And everybody here has a chair to sit in. And uh, the children have a place to go. They don't get stuffed in a broom closet anymore. They have like their own classrooms. And it's not just one big classroom with the two-month-old and the 12-year-old in the same place, right? It's amazing. This building that we have that's beautiful and that that fits our needs and, and that we can grow into, this was built completely from free will offerings from a group of people. Ten years ago we were talking about the need to plant churches and to be able to support, to get off our own financial support from outside sources so that so that we could support church plants in other places. And I look back and I think about Lamb, that's in the county, doing well, looking at building their own space. I think about Restoration in Stanton and Church of the Resurrection in Charlottesville, which has just started up and is doing so well. And I think about our Arabic-speaking congregation and the work of Bishop Andudu and others in that congregation to plant like five or six other refugee and immigrant churches all along the East Coast. Uh, Aubrey named the need to bring in um, recent seminary graduates to train them as vocational ministers so that they can do this work over the course of a lifetime and not go up in flames, right? It's pretty important. And he points to Luke uh, sitting there, who's our first curate. And he talks about Luke raising 80% of his salary. I'm I'm the fifth curate. We're deep in the interview process to bring on our sixth curate next year, and we spend none of our time raising our own salary out of the generosity of incarnation. I've benefited greatly from this program and from the generous generosity of this uh, family called the Kern family, who is wildly successful in the business world and has given an unbelievable amount of money to fund these residencies all over the country and in churches of all sorts of denominations. We talk about missions, wanting to do missions outside of our own church body and in other lands. And I think about what God has done through Pox Day for Nuba in the Nuba Mountains in Sudan and through our relationship that we've got with Bishop Andudu. And then finally, uh, Aubrey spent most of his time talking about how he saw God leading incarnation to be a place that will help those who are most in need in our community and are in poverty. And I think about uh, the work that I've gotten to do with the, Red- the Rector's Discretionary Fund, along with Eric and Martin and Keith and obviously Aubrey. And we work hard to try and steward that, steward that fund well. It only goes to people, only goes to physical and financial needs. And, um, but I think about the fact that we've, at least since I've been here, we've never once looked at a person that we've really wanted to help out and just had to say no, just because we don't have funds in it. It's never happened. Not once. All from generosity. Now, why do I say all this? Why do I, why do I review all these things? Um, it's not to say like we've done it. You know, finally, there's a sermon in this series that we don't have to think about later. It doesn't worry us. Uh, I'm also not about to cast the vision for the next ten years. Uh, it's Aubrey's job. I'm told I'm not supposed to do that anymore. Um, no, it's just to show us what God has done with generosity. It's what he always does. One of my favorite sayings that we have around here is you can't outgive God because it's true. And so I beg you to continue to imagine what God will continue to do with generosity. There's much more room to press into, to press toward the poor and needy, to commit ourselves to the hard work of a merciful and just and effective response to poverty in this city. And You can think of the individual person that, that I know pops into each of our minds as we think. Right? Or you can think of even larger work in the systems of our community. People like Levi and several others are working with an organization called Faith in Action, that's actively working on solutions like finding good tra- better tra- public transportation so people can get to work easier. There's many more ch- churches to plant. Studies show that church plants are one of the most effective ways for people who do not know Jesus to meet him. Or for Christians who have, who have finally just given up on faith or given up on church to find their way back. And I, I know that's some of your stories in this room. There are cities and towns and, and uh, there are people in every city and every town in our region that, that don't know Jesus, that don't know the way to abundant life that begins now and never ceases. There's so much more room to go more deeply into the relationships we have, right, in the Nuba Mountains in Sudan and and in other places that Ed Good's working working to open us up to. So now the question is, and this is where we'll spend our last few minutes, how do we do this? For some of us, this this generosity is so ingrained in, in who we are already and what we're doing already. Um, for others of us, this is new. And even thinking about the tithe last week was like a horse pill to swallow. So thinking about going above and beyond the tithe is like it's intimidating or just feels like, ah, that, you know, that ain't me. You know, uh, my heart does not stir right now like the Israelites in, in Exodus. That's great. That's great for them. But how do we have the margin in, in both time and resources to do this? How do we have the energy and the excitement to keep on giving generously or to start for the first time? How might our hearts be stirred up like the Israelites and like the New Testament Christians and like so many who have gone before us? Well, for some of us, not for all of us, but for some of us, the real issue is lifestyle. It is hard to think about giving generously, and it's hard practically to have something to give. If our hearts are always anxious with a desire for more instead of at rest, instead of resting in contentment, it is hard to think about giving generously, or it, and it's hard to have a th- something to give, whether time or money, if our hearts are always anxious for something more. We need to recover a sense of having enough we'll only feel like we have abundance, the kind that can be joyfully given away in a free will offering if we are living with a sense of enough. It's totally logical. If we have a sense that we have almost enough and that this one more thing will finally bring us there, then of course we're never going to have a sense of abundance. Enough has to come before abundance. So what I'm actually doing right now is not urging us to make painful sacrifices for the sake of others. There is a place for that, absolutely. But for many of us, myself included, there's a step that comes way before that. And it's just realizing that our collective drive for more and more directly damages our own well-being and the well-being of those around us. No matter who you are, if you're in this room right now you are exposed to a constant barrage of advertising and a culture of consumption that, uh, to put it lightly, does not encourage a sense of having enough right now. It's like I was watching football yesterday, probably going to watch some more football today. Um, you watch a lot of commercials when you're watching football, and commercials are great. advertising's great. But I I'll just challenge you, watch some commercials today with the lens of how they try to get you to buy a thing. It's often not just like, look how well made this is, and this will last, and it's, a, and it's a great product. There you go, you know. It usually has something to do with happiness is right there. It's almost there. Like, I saw a car commercial, I don't know, seven times yesterday that promised that I would not feel under so much pressure if I got this car, I, I think it was like, it was still sort of confusing to figure out what the, there was a soccer player involved. I don't know, some of y'all have seen this, but I, seriously, I had to watch it like six times. That is, that is liturgy. Like some of you are bored that we say the creed every week, but we don't say the creed and then say it again and then again and again and again. Like this stuff is training us to think, right? We are promised that happiness it's not far away and we don't need we don't need a ton more. It's right there. Just a little more. Out of reach, yeah, but barely. Here's the deal. This is just one of the pressures of our age. Even if you are totally wise about this, you're going to relapse. It's easy for any one of us to get caught to to get caught in this. So here's the question that I want us to think about. Is that thinking that we are fed right? Is it right? Is it good? Is it good for us? Is it good for you? Is it, is it making you happy? Is it good for our neighbors? Or is Jesus' teaching right? And is his teaching good? It's not about giving up running water or burning our debit cards. That won't fix the problem because the problem is actually not more stuff. The problem is we put no limit on stuff due to our insatiable human need For more. And that we think we need all sorts of things to be happy when really we need very few. I was talking with a friend this week about this, about how how we totally get caught up in this. It's so easy. So let me suggest we start here. It's very simple. What if Jesus was right in what he said and what he taught on money? That his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, that you cannot serve God and money. The word there for money is mammon, stuff. And that if we, if we serve money and stuff, it'll just lead to stress and anxiety. So the, passage, the famous passage on anxiety that Eric read the, about the lilies of the field and all of that, it comes with, it, within Jesus' teaching on money. What if he was right? What if the things that we're taught to believe about money and stuff and happiness, what if those things are just off? That the formula more stuff equals more happiness is just bad math. What if more stuff equals just more stress? More hours at the office, more debt, more years working a job I don't feel called to, more time wasted cleaning and maintaining and fixing and organizing and updating all the junk I don't even need. What if what if more stuff actually means less of other things? And those other things matter most. More stuff means less time. It means less financial freedom. Less generosity. The sense of having enough, if we can cultivate it, will liberate not only the poor, but also the rich. Human, human well-being requires, first and foremost, a lifestyle of restraint, not luxury. At the end of the day, it's simply about looking to Jesus and trusting that what King Jesus taught was true. And that it works. What he, what he calls us to, in a word, is simplicity. Simplicity. And simplicity can be done at any income level. Simplicity trains us to cultivate the sense of enough, contentment, that felt sense of enough, which is the ground from which joyful and spontaneous and generous giving can occur. And the result is blessedness. It's blessed contentment and watching the fruit of the kingdom grow, which is beautiful. And storing up treasures where things won't rust and and the moth won't eat them. It's contentment and blessedness. That's where Jesus would lead us today. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.